0: Hello and welcome to MedTalk's Superbug series. I'm Anthony Frangi. Beating harmful bacteria is no small achievement for doctors. But for someone fighting an aggressive infection, what does that battle feel like? Matthew Ames was just 39 years old when what started as a sore throat culminated in the loss of all four of his limbs. He had contracted a streptococcal infection that resulted in toxic shock a condition usually associated with high mortality. But against all odds, Matthew survived and now shares his story to help raise awareness about antibiotic resistance and to highlight the importance of research. Matthew joins me at the Third National Antimicrobial Resistance Forum in Brisbane. Also joining me today is Professor David Patterson. David is one of the key researchers in the area of antibiotic resistant bacterial infections. He's also the director of the University of Queensland Centre for Clinical Research. Welcome David and welcome Matthew. G'day. Matthew, can I just start with you, how fast did your infection come on?
1: Well, it probably started off as a low-grade infection for a while to start with. So it was, you know, what I thought was kind of the flu, and on a Monday. And then you know, I continued to work during that week, but it was really the Friday it started. To, I started to deteriorate. What started off, as you mentioned as a, a sore throat, then I started to get you know additional symptoms, including you know high fevers and you know uh, the shakes. Uh, I ended up not really you know wanting to be in light a Mm. bit nauseous and that was over that weekend so it continued to deteriorate over the extra few days I I saw a few doctors they they thought I had the flu turns out that you know I didn't Mm. I had an infection so I ended up in in the emergency department on the following Wednesday so a few days after I'd sort of become quite ill uh, and then it sort of deteriorated rapidly from there. I, um, I had sepsis, uh, with followed by toxic shock syndrome, so putting me into a coma, induced coma. The night I went into emergency department, and uh, and then they had to amputate my left. Arm two days later. Two uh, days later. Two days later. It was that quick. Yes, it was that quick. And then the following day, they came to you know Diane, my wife, to tell her that you know I probably wasn't going to make it, and that the only thing they thought could save my life with the infection as, as um, advanced as it was to remove my other three limbs yeah one percent I'm pretty stubborn so I'm still here so yeah. How did you take the news when you were told that? Uh, to say it's a shock was probably a bit of an understatement I woke up you know three weeks later I hadn't known kind of what had happened to me so Diane had to sit there at my bedside and you know explain what had happened to me over those three, three weeks so I was probably in a bit of a drug haze and I uh, didn't really probably process the full impact of what had happened um, to me but yes it was um, you know I'm a rational engineering type but kind of I remember thinking okay now I, I understand why I was so sick so yeah eye-opening experience into a world that I didn't really either understand or take enough notice of um, beforehand. But I'm certainly much more familiar with it now.
0: David, you will have seen and treated patients like Matthew. What is different about this situation uh, to that of many others?
2: Part of the the issue is that we're used to as healthy young or youngish people you know getting viral infections, getting the flu and getting better. But we know that when there is, a serious bacterial infection that sometimes leads to sepsis. That in fact, you've got a greater chance of dying if you come to an emergency department with sepsis than if you came to an emergency department with a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And yet, to the general public, most people have barely heard of sepsis. Maybe they've heard of septicemia as a, an old fashioned sort of term. What's complicating the situation now is that not only do we have regular garden variety bacteria causing sepsis, but we also have the situation where we can have bacteria that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. And that really heightens the problem because one of the key determinants of whether you're going to survive or what your outcome's going to be from sepsis is really how long it takes to get the right antibiotics on board. And if there's antibiotic resistance, often the first choice antibiotics are gonna be wrong because the bacteria is just gonna be completely resistant to them. So it, it's sort of a, a, a problem that intertwines. One is this whole issue of recognition that people can still die from infections or suffer absolutely dreadful consequences. And the second is, what is the impact of resistance of these bacteria to antibiotics actually going to, to do to this problem?
0: And when you hear Matthew's story, it's not certainly not the first time that you've heard the story, but when you heard it for the first time and what had happened, what was going through your mind?
2: Sometimes I, I think of as being akin to being on a river and it's a river that leads to a waterfall and a big, big drop. And not many people, once they're on that river and are over the edge, are ever going to make it alive. And sometimes uh, through how a person is, their resolve, their physiology, they can survive that, that drop. And for me, Matthew was over the, over the edge of the falls and was crashing to the rocks below. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing that he was able to survive that. How important is it for for Matthew to share his story as he's
0: doing now and has for some time now?
2: Well, I think the crucial thing is that we want people to understand that when they're on that rapidly flowing river, they know that they should be seeking help. If they're having really bad shaking chills, if they're becoming delirious, if they're vomiting and, and really not well, don't just say it's a virus, I'm going to get better that's when you need to, to seek medical care and the flip side is our doctors need to do better as well our doctors need to be much more aware of the the problem and how rapidly they need to act and so it, it is a, a multi-compartment issue that all those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle have to come together properly if we're going to get people through this.
1: And I think it's very important to understand the balance. For my particular situation it wasn't a complex bacteria. Antibiotics certainly would have prevented what happened to me if I had got them early enough. So understanding you're you're on that particular river but you're not always on that river. You know there are other times where you know I have You know, all my kids have been ill and, you know, your body can do just fine without antibiotics. And I think the big thing that we need to understand as a community is is actually just understanding that tipping point. When I needed antibiotics, I'm here, so they kind of worked, but I got them very late. And so I certainly appreciate firsthand the absolute value of those antibiotics and preserving the effectiveness of them is, I think, a, a whole of community um, aspect that we need we need to address because once I was in hospital I then did end up contracting a, a superbug or you know MRSA or golden staff mm. and then I kind of understood the difficulties of getting rid of of that so I think you know I have probably experienced all different aspects of the antibiotic conundrum and, uh, and understanding that balance between all of those different factors um, is, is very important I think.
0: And David, in in Matthew's case, was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was it that his body was struggling or was different to... Because this doesn't happen every
2: day, does it? No, that's right. And, And we're learning more and more about this whole equation of bacteria versus human. There are certainly some conditions in in otherwise healthy people where they're more susceptible to sepsis or more susceptible to certain bacterial infections. And there's equally different strains of bacteria and there's some that are hyper virulent. In other words, they are very, very nasty. Even if they don't have antibiotic resistance, they can uh, knock you over quick smart. So it is a, a, a balance and sometimes we never work out which was it was it both? Uh, was it the, the host and the bacteria that led to this very bad infection? But, uh, but that's clearly a, a big area that we have to research in the future.
0: And how much research is, is being undertaken right now?
2: Yeah, so the UQ, the University of Queensland, actually leads the world in many aspects of uh, research in terms of microbiology, antibiotic development developing tests for antibiotic resistance and doing trials on different strategies to treat uh, antibiotic resistant infections when they're occurring. So there is now increasingly a a push from the government to help uh, support this type of research but it's a problem that is not going to go away because the trouble is the bacteria are very very clever and in response to new antibiotics they dream up new ways to evade those antibiotics and Mm. in some situations they physically destroy the antibiotics and so it's a bit of a uh, a war of humans versus bacteria as we think we've got the upper hand the bacteria develop new mechanisms of resistance so it's going to be an ongoing area of research.
0: Matthew when you realised that your life would be changed
1: forever uh, by this infection, what were the
0: areas that concerned you most?
1: My family, mm. you know, it was probably the thing that I was most concerned about. You know, the impact that it would have on my wife and my kids in particular, and then you know my broader family and friends. And but the flip side of that is that I, you know, I think I've probably been lucky enough to see the best of humanity through that process as well through the you know through those people and many more because you you do a lot of public speaking now on this very topic don't you um i do i do the odd occasion yeah so it's (laughs) um i just think it's you know i've always appreciated the value of storytelling you know i think the the media uh, do a fantastic job in being able to communicate people's stories because i think it's it's when you actually understand those stories that you can can actually connect with what's actually happening
0: when people approach you who perhaps don't understand what you've gone through yes you explain to them as you have to us today What what sort of questions do they ask you
1: varied and many mm. um, it can really depend like age is a very interesting perspective like kids will be so much more blunt um, mm. um, which I really appreciate
0: what sort of questions will they ask
1: well oh, where are your arms and legs yep. To which in the bin is generally a very, <laughs> you know, they're okay with that. They go, okay, radio, But I think the thing that I really appreciate is when somebody sees me not just the fact that I don't have um, arms and legs. It's kind of like if somebody came up and said, you know, I notice you got gray hair. And all they ever wanted to talk about was your grey hair. (laughs) Um, And every single person who ever met you, the first thing they ever talked about was your grey hair. Mm. So your grey hair is part of you, but it is not all of you. Mm. Um, So I think I appreciate most when people understand that. But yeah, I also understand that people are naturally inquisitive, um, and that I'm okay with.
0: Are you comforted, or do you have the
1: opportunity to, to talk to people who are in similar situations to you? I do. Um, there's a group of us. We call ourselves the Quad Squad. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have arms and we don't have legs. Is the um, is the high price of entry to that particular <laughs> club? You know, we certainly have an ability to to help ourselves, uh, help out each other um, through those connections, which is um, which is great. But interestingly enough, well, all of them are infection. um All quadruple amputees that I know. Of, you know, I know since I my case seven years ago you know there's at least 20 odd in australia that have you know unfortunately joined that that club and you think of it the whole of the conflict in the middle east i think there's five quadruple amputees Mm. you know and globally i think we've got we're up around the 150 odd so and every single one of those is infection related and most of them are probably more in that um, you know the healthier range because Mm know very young or very old unfortunately we're we're, to a certain degree we're the lucky ones we made it.
0: David how concerned should we be if we have to be admitted into hospital for surgery
2: today? The stats are that probably only at most five percent of people will develop an infection after an operation Mm. most of those it will be what we call a superficial infection so an infection really just of the skin but there are a proportion of people one or two percent of people who have an operation where the infection gets deep or uh, it gets into their blood and that can have life-threatening consequences or it can have huge consequences if for example you've had a hip replacement or a knee replacement though that surgery failing and those artificial uh, components having to be removed and it is a big, big deal with the requirement then for multiple operations. So hospitals around the world now have finally got it that this is a huge patient safety issue that we have to be doing so much to prevent people getting infections if they've come into hospitals. You know, you, you sort of hear these ancient stories of people going into hospital and giving birth and dying of septicemia. You know, in the 1800s, etc. For us, with all our technology, it is a disaster if a person gets an infection in hospital. But unfortunately, it does happen. And even though we'd like the rates to be zero, I think realistically we're never going to get to zero. Yeah. But we have to do everything we can as a healthcare system and broad, more broadly as a society to to try and conquer that issue. The the, the the real problem, though, is there are some parts of the world where, if you come into hospital after an injury or a uh, have an operation, you could actually get a superbug, and then the consequences are potentially an untreatable infection. So you you know you ride a scooter for the first time in Bali, end up in a hospital in Indonesia, get a superbug. Not everyone's going to come home in that situation, unfortunately, because the support structures and then the lack of availability of antibiotics are are going to be a problem. And that's what we really have to avoid here in Australia.
0: Where does Australia sit if if we're looking at a table? uh, Are we doing the best or are there other countries that we can learn from?
2: We're definitely not doing the best. We're doing reasonably well, but if you look at places like Scandinavia or the Netherlands... They have just a different level of both community, society, uh, hospital structures to prevent infections. And they have a program they call search and destroy. If they find someone who's, who's got a resistant bacteria, they go out of the way to identify them and try and eradicate the, the germ from their body so it's not spread to another, another patient. We've got to pick up our game. We're doing reasonably, but there's no need for complacency. I mean, from what Matt's told us, you know, in in Matthew's story where, you know, there were potentially opportunities where things could have been done differently that uh, might have led to a, a different outcome. And I know from my work that if I see a preventable infection or an antibiotic that was misused or an opportunity where an antibiotic should have been given much earlier, I really feel sorry and disappointed in in the fact that we haven't been able to prevent that situation.
0: Matthew, how do you feel when you hear uh, comments like that, that things could have been done differently in your circumstances? Oh,
1: I know they could have been done differently, yeah. so that's not news to me. I think the, you know, I, I get the same feeling, you know, that really kind of Deep pit in my stomach when I kind of when I keep meeting people who have gone through the same experience that I've had. That you know I haven't met a medical professional yet who isn't interested in sort of helping their patients. Yet, despite that, we I keep still seeing, as I mentioned, you know those you know, number of people, and that's just the kind of the tip of the iceberg. They're kind of the one small section. So, I think fundamentally, we have a systemic failure to learn, and that's why I'm really keen to not have to meet people like me over and over again.. Mm. And I guess it's one of the reasons why you'll hear at this forum. It is, yes, yeah? definitely. You know I think um, you know both the antimicrobial stewardship plus the you know the sepsis prevention side of things are you know two of the key things that i I, I get involved in.
2: I think Matthew's story is just so important you know what what you're actually doing now a person who may have symptoms of sepsis that they see a doctor that they are recognized by the doctor as having something that needs to be investigated and treated and a person sent to hospital I think that's a huge huge message and then on the other hand if there's not an infection That we're very judicious in our antibiotic use. That um, you know we don't use antibiotics in some situations. It's a you know it's a delicate and tricky line. There's no not always a, a clear situation. But as Matthew has done, educating the public, coming here to educate us as doctors and healthcare professionals. It's really A fantastically appreciated uh, effort that you do. Thanks, Tony.
0: What can people learn from from Matthew's experience? What can the medical fraternity learn?
2: Some people think that, you know, I've never seen a, a real bad infection. We'll just wait and see. And, you know, I think we'll, you know, we'll go down a certain path. There are some situations where an infection is an emergency. And as I mentioned before, and any emergency department now in the world with sepsis you're more likely to die than if you came with a heart attack mm. for heart for people who come to an emergency department with chest pain now there are teams that are assembled there's processes written down and and replicated the world over we're only starting to get that sort of program launched for for people with serious infections or suspected serious infections and that's something that's that's got to come in.
1: And I think it has overseas. you know I think the UK has done a, a huge um, push on you know, how they can actually educate their uh, the public as well as the um, the medical profession about how to how to do it better, um, and their rates have you know certainly reduced because of it, so you know I'm looking forward to seeing that that here. And I think maybe one thing that you know as far as learning from my my case as well is one thing that i have certainly learned is is understand that difference between you know kind of a low-grade infection that my body can handle uh and then understanding when it might need a little bit of help you know i think if we can educate people and i think that's both healthcare professionals and uh the general public about what those signs are you know i think that will certainly help you know what, what does sepsis actually look like what are the what are the things that you need to look out for? Because you know it can be scary. You know, as a as a patient, if you're sick, you just want to get better. You mm. know, we all want that. Mm. So, you know, how do we actually uh, address those fears and help people with information about what's the right way to get better, so that we both preserve antibiotics um, but get them when we really need them? David, are there clinical trials underway that that you're pretty
0: excited about that may have the outcomes that, that, that you and others are looking
2: for? So, I'm really proud uh, to be at the University of Queensland because the world's largest sepsis trial was coordinated by a University of Queensland professor who's also a director of an ICU. Uh, that's a man called Bala Venkatesh. There's a, a group here led by Professor Jeff Lipman and Professor Jason Roberts. Who are doing the world's largest trial on different ways to give antibiotics in seriously ill patients in the intensive care unit. Dr. Patrick Harris and uh, Tiffany Harris-Brown, who I work with, have recently conducted the largest clinical trial on antibiotic resistant bacteria in the blood, comparing two different uh, antibiotic strategies. So there is a lot going on. These this work that has been coordinated here locally for example last year one of those studies was voted in america the trial that was most likely to change doctors practice all originating from, from brisbane and so that's you know a, a pretty amazing achievement while we've got to you know we've got this opportunity to influence what goes on in the world at a local level we've still got room to really get things right and I think as as Matthew said a virus a flu might not need any antibiotics at all if a person's got a runny nose and a bit of a sore throat that goes along with it some people might say oh I've got the flu but that's a virus it's not going to require antibiotics if you've got big time shakes you're feeling short of breath you might even be a bit delirious, you know, your, your partner says, you know, they're just not acting right, and you're in bed all day, that's something wrong, and that's possible sepsis where you need to get to an emergency department and, and get treated. So our, our trouble is that the flu covers such a gamut from things that clearly don't need antibiotics to things that are more serious than having a heart attack. So that that's part of the message the we've got to get across to our, our community.
1: I think the other thing that I'd like to see is is research coming forward on the diagnostics side of things, yes. you know, uh, one of the big issues is getting the right antibiotics as early as possible, so you know, and we're still in the age of waiting a couple of days to grow cultures and waiting for these things to grow which um, you know, so I, I know there's been a few, uh, a few research areas done on that, but we're not quite there yet. So, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when we can, you know, stick it in a machine and they can tell us what we've got.
2: Absolutely, and again, there, there's a lot of research here uh, on that, trying to find out, because it, it's ridiculous. We're doing the same thing as was done 100 years ago in in diagnosing bacterial infections. Crazy. Yeah. But there is new technology coming and yeah.
0: yeah. Well, Professor David Patterson and Matthew Ames, thank you so much for joining us on Med Talks today here at the Third National Antimicrobial Resistance Forum in
1: Brisbane. Thank Absolutely you. very much.